Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 17 Pathfinder. Now, before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to take a minute to encourage you to check out our YouTube channel, Role Playing History Podcast. I uploaded a new video earlier this week, and it covers some things I've discussed on the podcast before, but presents it in a slightly different way. So, if you're not a regular viewer of YouTube, go check it out after today's episode. Now, on with the show. The Pathfinder role-playing game was published by Paizo Publishing in 2009, designed by Jason Bullman. It was designed as an expansion and modification of the system reference document and open game license from Wizards of the Coast for Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition. Or, in simpler terms, Pathfinder was created by Paizo to satiate players of 3rd Edition and 3.5 Edition D&D who had no desire to play the just-released 4th Edition and wanted a system that would continue to be supported. Now, there was another reason behind Paizo's decision to create a whole new game, and to understand that, we need to cover a little bit of Paizo's history. Paizo had taken over the publishing of both Dungeon and Dragon magazines in 2002. As we've discussed in previous episodes, both of these magazines were focused on D&D. Paizo was licensed to publish the magazines through Wizards of the Coast, but Wizards chose to not renew the contract in 2007. Wanting to continue to support D&D, Paizo adjusted their course, creating the Pathfinder periodical line. This allowed for the writers and creators who'd been working on Dragon and Dungeon to continue to produce material for the games and gave them a platform to have their works published. This was all legal due to the open game license Wizards had created when 3rd edition was released. Basically, so long as they didn't make massive structural changes to the game, and so long as they gave Wizards printed credit as the owners of D&D, they were good to go. I mean, obviously there was more to it than that, but for our purposes here, all was copacetic. So, when Wizards announced in August of 2007 that 4th edition was coming out, some folks at Paizo got a little bit nervous. That nervousness was heightened when the new game system license was announced for 4th edition. In their opinion, and frankly in the opinions of many in the game industry, both at the time and now, the game system license was way more restrictive than the open game license had been. So, Paizo again adjusted course. Realizing there would be a market for more of the 3rd edition, 3.5 edition style of fantasy gaming, they announced in March of 2008 that they were using an open playtest to create their own game. I need to take a second here to explain exactly what an open playtest is. Now, when creating games, pretty much every creator and company will choose to alpha test, then beta test their games. An alpha test would be where the creators play the game among themselves, maybe inviting in select guests to sit in and provide feedback. Once that process has gone on for a bit of time, the beta test comes into play. The methods of choosing groups for beta testing vary by company, but typically game groups can apply to the companies themselves to request to be a beta test group for the new game. They are provided with the rules as written at that point, as well as feedback requirements and any other requirements the company needs to make of that test group. For the record, sometimes these requirements can include frequency of play, number of players in a group, non-disclosure agreements, and so on and so forth. Paizo didn't do this. 
their open play test was just that, open. Anybody who wanted to play test the system was invited to do so, and Paizo accepted feedback on their website from anyone who wanted to provide it. Now, in my 40-plus years of gaming, I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like that. It can be argued that part of the reason behind open playtests is the fact that Pathfinder wasn't carving out an entirely new game system. After all, D&D 3rd Edition had spread like wildfire through the gaming community, so there were a whole lot of people who already played and admitted to enjoying that system. Since Pathfinder was going to be very similar to that edition in a number of ways, my guess is that the feeling was there just wasn't going to be a ton of secrets to keep. Now, mind you, that's just my guess. I haven't found any comments from folks at Paizo that back that up. So, what exactly was Paizo changing about 3rd edition to make Pathfinder its own game? Jason Bullman has gone on record numerous times over the past decade, noting that one of his biggest issues with 3.5 edition was that the base classes were lackluster. In fact, in one interview, he noted that, quote, there's no incentive to stay with a single class for a full 20 levels of play or to keep a campaign going for 20 levels, end quote. That was what he was trying to change. Now, according to reports, there was a joke amongst Paizo employees during this time that they were creating 3.75 edition, but they knew that for legal purposes, they'd have to stay within the guidelines of the open game license. One of the changes that was made was in balancing different game elements. See, in D&D, the classes that are intended to be on the front lines of battle, the fighter, the cleric, the barbarian, and the paladin, have a lot of hit points. While the classes that aren't, like the wizard, sorcerer, and other spellcasters, have a lot fewer hit points at similar levels. From a tactical perspective, this means that an attack that might do low damage to one of those tank characters could wipe out a spellcaster. Now, some old school gamers were argued that that's just the way it works and remind us that you knew that when you chose to play the character. But why does it have to be that way? Why can't we find another way to balance things out? Why does hit points need to be the great divider? Bullman believes it doesn't have to be, and therefore hit points were adjusted to bring things a bit more into line. Now, Understanding that a wizard that can do 80 to 100 hit points of damage with a single spell would now have more hit points than before, Bullman also knew he needed to even things out a bit on the other end. His team did that and a whole lot more. Spells were adjusted with a more realistic feel and damage given to them. The skill system was adjusted, as were combat maneuvers. The idea with each change made to the system was that things would be made more fair and equitable while improving the play experience for each person who tried out Pathfinder. And I would remind you that Pathfinder was created through an open play test, so it's safe to say that a large majority of these changes were more than likely suggested by folks who played the play test, or at the very least, they didn't object to the changes that made it into the final version. Of course, if you're creating a game, you need a setting world. And for Pathfinder, that world is called Galarian. Paizo has dropped a ton of supplemental material that really details that world, making it easier for GMs to make Galarian their own. Paizo also took a page from both TSR and from Wizards, creating their own adventure society called the Pathfinder Society. Now, why is this a big thing? Well, TSR and Wizards had, over the years, each had a type of adventuring society that would allow players to bring their characters to society events and play them in games there. 
The characters were deemed official and whatever loot they acquired during these sessions were transferable to other games. Now, Jolly Blackburn has poked fun at this concept several times in his Nights at the Dinner Table, specifically pointing out how the difference in GM style could impact the effects that some of these characters could have on a game. And it was a real issue for some folks. After all, if you've got one GM who's more of a Monty Hall GM, which of course means they give away treasure like it's candy at Halloween, and you've got another GM who believes that every single item of treasure must be carefully considered for placement in an adventure so as to not possibly upset the careful balance of the game and game world, <laughs> you're going to have a confrontation when a player from the Monty Hall game winds up in the careful balance game. Now, I'll admit, the Pathfinder Society doesn't address this completely. Much like its predecessors, it requires characters to be registered. In this case, it's through Paizo's website. After a play session, players receive Chronicle Sheets, which provides them with a list of what they've earned during the session. The players must then use the Chronicle Sheets to log their gains on the website, thereby keeping their characters up to date with Paizo. A check of the Pathfinder Society on Paizo's website also shows they've got a pretty solid set of rules for which supplements can be used to create characters. They've also got a system in place to note that some races and or classes are rare, which means they may not be accepted at all game tables. Now, some might call the fairness of that into question, but if you've been gaming for any length of time, you probably get it. The idea behind putting a rareness or other standard on a race class, or item is to prevent someone from pulling a Monty Hall and bringing in a character that could potentially unbalance an entire campaign. So, in short, it's Paizo working to keep all of its gamers and game masters a little more honest. And I'm okay with that. How was Pathfinder received? Well, you know how we've talked about D&D being the best-selling role-playing game of all time? That's still a true statement. But from the spring of 2011 through the summer of 2014, the best-selling role-playing game in the world was Pathfinder. Yep. Pathfinder was so popular, it outsold D&D 4th Edition. Now, one could argue that some of that was also a statement about D&D 4th Edition. But still, let's give this game credit where the credit is due. And Pathfinder has gotten credit. The beta release won a Silver Any Award at Gen Con 2008 for Best Free Product or Web Enhancement. Paizo also picked up Any's for Best Publisher and Best Game for Pathfinder. Now, there's a whole lot more to discuss about Pathfinder, and we're going to talk about it right after this. Now, I mentioned briefly that Paizo has published a ton of supplementary materials over the years. Much as Wizards has done with each of their editions of D&D, Paizo has released bestiary books to describe and introduce a number of monsters to the game, supplements to bring in new classes and races, their Pathfinder Unchained supplement, which brought in variant rules for customizing gameplay, which, by the way, includes new skill and magic item rules, and a book called Mythic Adventures, which provided for play beyond the game's usual 20-level limit. Those are just a few of the supplements. Naming all of them, it would take a little bit longer than I have in the rest of this show. Paizo also published a number of adventure supplements as well, providing GMs with a wide range of adventures to run should they choose not to create their own. And Paizo dropped the Pathfinder Beginner Box, which is a basic version of the Pathfinder game. The idea here, which might sound familiar from another product I've discussed in the past, 
is to provide a basic set of rules for new players to use to introduce them to the hobby and to the game. Pathfinder also has a line of miniatures and maps for use with their system. Now, Paizo took the possibilities of what could be done with Pathfinder even farther, though. At Gen Con 2013, they licensed a card game, the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, designed by Mike Selinker of Lone Shark Games. Three expansions were released before a second edition of the core game was released in May of 2019. Steve Jackson Games released a Pathfinder-themed Munchkin card game in 2013. Paizo published a line of novels called Pathfinder Tales based on the setting. There are more than 30 books in the line, with writers like Dave Gross, Elaine Cunningham, James L. Sutter, and Ed Greenwood among those writing titles in the line. There's also a line of Pathfinder comic books published by Dynamite Entertainment. That also got spinoffs, Pathfinder Goblins and Pathfinder Worldscape. Big Finish Productions produced a series of audio dramas based on the settings. There's also been video games developed. Pathfinder Online, which was intended to be a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, was announced on November 27, 2012 by Paizo and Goblin Works. They announced a Kickstarter to fund creation, and that Kickstarter was quite successful. They began the alpha test in late 2014, then announced early enrollment in July of 2015. After that, well, after that, everything went to hell. On September 2nd, 2015, Lisa Stevens, who was the acting CEO of Goblin Works and the CEO of Paizo, announced layoffs at Goblin Works. Those layoffs consisted of most of the Pathfinder online development team. Therefore, that game never advanced beyond early enrollment. On May 17th, 2017, Paizo joined up with Alcat Games and tried again. They announced Pathfinder Kingmaker. Another successful Kickstarter was completed, but this time a game got released. Pathfinder Kingmaker, which is an RPG in the Infinity Engine feel of game, was released on September 25th, 2018. In February of 2020, Alcat launched another Kickstarter. This one was intended for a sequel to Kingmaker called Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. It alpha tested in April of 2020 and released on September 2nd, 2021. By the way, this game adopts the adventure path Wrath of the Righteous. Now, Paizo has also been willing to play well with other developers. In November of 2020, Paizo joined up with Pinnacle Entertainment Group to release a version of Pathfinder that utilizes Pinnacle's Savage World RPG. It's been announced that the first line of books will include rule books as well as an adventure path called Rise of the Rune Lords. It's a lot of stuff from one edition of the game. Seriously. But Pathfinder is not a one-and-done game. In May of 2018, Paizo announced that they were working on a second edition, listening to the feedback they were getting from gamers from that original system, as well as their own observations about how the game was working. In August of 2018, they published the preliminary rule set, calling it Pathfinder Playtest, and released it so that players could test the rules and provide feedback. Now, personally, I remember when that book hit game stores, I remember looking at it and thinking that it was a hell of a risk, but also a hell of a smart idea at the same time. I thought it was a risk because putting the preliminary rules out there in a printed form for sale could mean that fewer players actually play the game and therefore you get less feedback. 
However, I remember that the cost of the rules wasn't the same as the first edition of the rules. So that leads to why I thought it was a smart idea. By selling the playtest rules, you can basically fund the cost of creating and publishing a new rulebook. Okay, maybe not entirely, but enough to really make it worth doing a second edition. And quite frankly, charging for those rule sets also means the only people that are going to pick them up are people that are serious about playtesting. Therefore, you should be getting serious playtest and serious feedback. But hell, it doesn't matter what I think. The playtest went well, and the finished rule set was released on August 1st, 2019. So, what changes did Pathfinder make for the second edition? One of the big changes was a streamlined action economy. See, in D&D 5th edition, there's a number of things you can do on your turn, but you have to try to remember what's an attack, what's a move, and, and what's an optional action, and, and how can I do this, and how... Blah! In the new edition of Pathfinder, they have simplified things. Each round, each character can perform up to three actions on their turn, as well as a single reaction, either on their turn or on another character's turn. Some of the more basic moves, such as drawing a weapon or attacking, cost an action. More complex actions can cost two or three actions. See the difference here? In Pathfinder 2nd Edition, it's easier for me to figure out if I can do what I want to do by understanding that I have three actions in the round. If I want to attack, that automatically uses an action. So if I want to do something else, I have to keep in mind the number of actions it will take. Or I can just bludgeon the shit out of something and blow all three actions on attacks. And yes, I have someone in my group who specializes in bludgeoning the shit out of things. Actually, now that I think about it, who am I kidding? My whole freaking group specializes in bludgeoning the shit out of things. So... Kudos to them. Second edition also changes the rules around magic items in a way that encourages players to try to seek out more powerful equipment rather than hoarding a ton of lesser items. This comes at least in part from the concept of investing. When a player invests in an item, it ties that item to their inner potential. A player may only benefit from 10 invested magic items each day. Now, since the invest action only applies to worn items, this doesn't sound like a big deal. But if a player switches worn items, the item they take off loses the investor and still counts against the daily limit. Now, I know what you're thinking. How does that lead to less hoarding? You're going to have to trust me on this one. Paizo also changed how different magic items are classified and how they work together. This combination of rule changes encourages players to continually try to upgrade their magic and to just not hoard shit. The critical hit system has also been changed for this edition. In 2nd edition, a critical hit or a success occurs any time a combatant rolls 10 or higher than the target's armor class. This is different from the 1st edition of Pathfinder and pretty much 3rd edition, 3.5, 4th edition, and 5th edition of D&D, by the way, which only allow for a success on a natural 20. Another change is that you can critically save, which typically means you take no damage or other effect from whatever you were saving against, rather than the half damage you would normally take from a past save. Finally, scaling was changed on things like skills, armor class, attack rolls, saves, and difficulty classes. Needless to say, 2nd edition, while not a full top-down redo, is certainly an overhaul of the system, designed to tighten up issues noticed through the play of the initial edition. 
Charlie Hall reviewed second edition for Polygon magazine in August of 2019 and said it, quote, feels unified and complete rather than a hodgepodge of errata and exceptions that had accumulated for its previous iteration, end quote. He also praised the graphic design of the book and its attention to detail. Pathfinder 2nd Edition is a 2020 Origins Award nominee, and it won the 2019 TechRaptor Award from the readers as Tabletop Role-Playing Game of the Year. As a promotion for the 2nd Edition of the game, Paizo teamed up with Geek & Sundry to produce an actual play or livestream series called Pathfinder Knights of Everflame. Jason Bullman, creator of the original edition, runs a game for five players using 2nd Edition. Two eight-episode games were run, and while all sources claim this game is just on hiatus, no new content has been released since December of 2019. So, Pathfinder has found its way into the top of the role-playing game heap, consistently finishing second behind D&D in total sales, but still way ahead of the rest of the pack. And based on what we've seen to this point, I have no reason to believe that this won't continue in the future. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're going to do another creator deep dive as we look at the life and career of one Monty Cook. As we wrap up this week's episode, I need to send another shout out to For The Loot. Check them out on Twitch if you're into some live game streaming and catch them on Twitter at For The Loot. Of course, without your support, my dear listener, there is no podcast, so thank you for doing what you do. As always, you can check us out on Facebook. Our page is Role Playing History Podcast. On Twitter, <laughs> well, I figured out after I posted last week's episode that I've been giving you the wrong Twitter tag for the podcast like a dumbass. So let's be real. You can reach us on Twitter at RolePlayingP. Catch us on YouTube. Our channel is Role Playing History Podcast. Click on the subscribe button and hit the bell to get alerts when we drop new shit like we did earlier this week. I was asked about the website since I haven't mentioned it in a while. Look, I am not a tech wizard by any stretch of the imagination, so I have absolutely no clue when we will have one. But when we have one, you will be the first to know. I promise. Of course, if you're the emailing type, you can drop us a line at roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. Of course, all this stuff that I mentioned should be down in your info box. And if it's not, God, let me know so I can chew out whichever service it was on to make sure they get my stuff straight, because that kind of pisses me off. Next week, we will look at the creative genius that is Monty Cook. But... That's next week. And until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.